everyone. We are live from America and just outside the matrix. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Rachel Blevins filling in for Lee Stranahan and this is The Backstory. Now, coming up on today's show, we have more censorship taking place across the internet than ever before, but now establishment media is targeting the alternative platforms who don't comply. We're going to take a look at some of those recent attacks. Plus, President Biden tells U.S. troops in Poland that they will see the bravery of Ukrainian soldiers, quote, when they get there. The White House says that this was just another Biden moment, but what did he really mean by that? And then, with skyrocketing energy prices and warnings of a global food shortage, we'll discuss the state of the U.S. economy and what you need to know in the days to come. Now, we'll also be taking your calls in this first half hour at 202-521-1320. You're listening to The Backstory. Now, it has been a privilege to get to be on here talking to all of you every day this week from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And it was during yesterday's show that Politico decided that they were going to publish a new article, which I would argue is quite the hit piece. Now, when it comes to RT and Sputnik, if you've followed these networks for a while, you know that these stories are not uncommon, especially coming from mainstream media networks who really don't think that they have anything better to talk about. However, this recent piece from Politico is notable because they're not just criticizing RT and Sputnik, they are criticizing any of the platforms that dare to allow RT and Sputnik to post their content on those platforms. So the title of their piece specifically goes after Rumble. Now, if you're not familiar with it, Rumble is one of those alternative video platforms out there that has gained popularity, especially over the last few months. And one of the reasons that they have gained popularity has been the fact that they are not engaging in some of these targeted censorship movements like YouTube, like Twitter, like Facebook. So People go to Rumble, sites like Rumble, for content that they can't find anything else. I mean, Odyssey's in that same boat. Rockfin is there as well. But this Politico article specifically went after Rumble. Now, here's what's notable, because a lot of times when you get these sort of mainstream attacks, and they they did this to RT and to RT America a number of times, which is that they try to take the lens and to say, well, these networks are so unimportant, they so don't matter. And so as a result of that, no one listens to them, right? They're making no movement out there whatsoever. They have no impact on media as we know it. And then they suddenly flip-flop and they say, oh, well, these networks are so important and so powerful that they are influencing entire elections that happened a few years after the coverage that they put out there. And so it's either one extreme or the other, oftentimes, when they talk about RT. But in doing so, and in going after platforms like Rumble, what they are saying is that they are so bored with their coverage and with their lives that they feel the need to try to go after other platforms on the internet. And they will argue to you that no one is on Rumble, that no one pays attention to this platform, and yet now they're trying to call them out. And they do it, of course, they say, well, this is a platform that is hosting quote-unquote Russian disinformation because that's their term of the moment. But on top of that, 
they take it a step further and they say that it is, you know, catering to right-wing extremism. And, you know, the first one of the paragraphs, rather, in this article says, quote-unquote, Forced off mainstream platforms, a number of radio shows associated with quote-unquote Russian state media have found a welcome home on Rumble, the video-sharing platform favored by conservatives and the far right, which is funny because I know a number of people on Rumble who are actually much more on the far left, but okay, that's that's the, uh, the side that they want to take. Now, here's the thing. This reporter who wrote this article that appeared on Politico didn't just sit there and criticize, uh, didn't just sit there and criticize Rumble, rather. They also went after any platform that hosted Sputnik, it appears. And I say that because another one of the paragraphs says, quote, as of Wednesday, Sputnik also continued to operate a page on the podcast platform Simplecast, which is owned by Sirius XM. However, when approached by Politico, Simplecast also removed Sputnik's programming. Now, of course, the response from Simplecast was that they didn't even know that Sputnik was on their platform. So my question then becomes, if they don't even know that Sputnik's there, then clearly it was not enough of a problem for them. Clearly, the only reason that they took any action was because they had someone from Politico basically shaming them into it, referring to it as Russian state media, referring to it as a network that needed to be completely banned from their platform. And therefore, they didn't want to be called out in a political article. They didn't want to be in the same position as Rumble being there in that place of now being widely criticized by Politico and claiming that they cater to the far right. Therefore, they fell in line. And that's the problem of what we're seeing. It comes first on the hands of the mainstream media that with everything else going on in the world today, they apparently have nothing better to do with their time than to sit there and to shame all of these alternative platforms, which they don't actually care about, but to try to go after them and to try to make them fall into line and comply with their latest campaign of the moment, which of course right now it's RT. The question then becomes, what is it going to be tomorrow? Because it will always be something. And they can act as if they are taking up some sort of noble quest going after, quote unquote, Russian disinformation when they've never actually really spent the time listening to any of the content that we put out there. But in doing so... What they're doing is they're trying to get the public into this place where they don't even begin to question it when the next cancel campaign becomes the next big thing and they just go along with it and they don't ask questions. However, it doesn't stop here. It will be something. That's for sure. There will be a next thing whenever they finally get over their fascination with Russia. All right. We've got our first caller today. I want to bring in Sanchez from California, who also has a channel channel that has been censored. Excuse me. Sanchez, welcome to the show. Yeah, I I was actually getting ready to call you about something else about the economy, but I hope you don't mind me starting with the fact that, yes, um, I've been an activist, uh, an anti-war, and else uh, since before the Iraq war started. 
And a lot of the coverage that we used to get here locally was done by Archie back in the aughts and in the teens. And Archie was the only uh, uh, news agency that covered the actual busting of the crackdown of Occupy LA, where I was a founding member. And they were the only ones that had me on camera as as the, the arrests were being done. And I had that as a clip on my Sanchez Montebello YouTube channel, with, along with all my other political clips and other clips from RT, uh, when they were discussing uh, other, uh, like, CIA scandals and other clips like that. In fact, mm-hmm. I might have one of your old programs as a clip of one of my things. So anyway, this was before all of this uh, crackdown went, went with, the, you know, the censorship. So because I had those amongst all of my other media creations, my channel was banned. So. Wow. And and think about that. You know, you talk about how you have a history as an anti-war activist. And so often these big tech companies, they let actual violent extremists just run rampant on their platforms. And then they go after people for questioning the narrative or for speaking out against wars or U.S. foreign policy. I mean, it just it it does not fall in line with logic. But yet it none of this really seems to. And it seems as if they just want to either slap a label on it or simply give you, I mean, in your case, did they give you the classic, you violated our content policies and then not much else, not much explanation from that? No, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a generic uh, uh, window. It's just that you're denied service, the denial of service because you've, it's not even that. So I sent them a message and I haven't received any sort of a response. So that's it. Uh, and I'm very tempted to, to put my stuff now on uh, that same Rumble channel because at least I know that there, uh, you know, I have copies of most of my stuff. So at least I know that there it won't, uh, you know, it won't be taken down. It's like the economy. If you put your money like you were talking about before, if you put your money in a bank or someplace, you expect it to be there. And here, like the Russians, for example— and with the Federal Reserve and, and the, the sanctions that went into effect, they lost their money. Um, you, you were saying something about the economy and Joe Biden uh, on yesterday's broadcast. I wasn't able to call in, but I, I can I answer your question from yesterday? Do you mind? Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. You were asking, uh, are they doing this deliberately to us? Um I don't know on on your uh, Boombust program. Did you guys ever uh, cover the Great Reset? Um, I think we did a little bit. That may not have been something that we went too in depth in. But uh, what what are your thoughts on the whole topic? Well, okay. Well, here's here's the deal. I got to bring up uh, uh, your your um, colleague Caleb Maupin, uh, who on his uh, own little podcast he does on on Tuesday nights. I think it is. Uh, he brought up something that's a classic that everybody should know about, the shock doctrine. I have a signed copy of that that book. Uh, I actually got to hear Naomi Klein speak a long, long time ago. You, and everybody's familiar with the shock doctrine, Milt Freeman's uh, Uni- University of Chicago economics and how this is like a, a super form of deregulated capitalism that comes into effect after we've had a major shock. and. I'm sure you're familiar with the book, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, well, 
we're into this post, it, it kind of got jumbled around, but we're into now a post-COVID shock yeah. in our system. And now we're willingly accepting, as you can see for yourself, we're willingly accepting a war. And you know that this is a war based on lies, but the most of the crowd is, is going will, willfully. We're sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine, but there, it's all being done willfully. Absolutely no questions being, being uh, uh, asked about that. And so, again, you ask, is this being done deliberately? It's part of this other thing, which is called the Great Reset. And I really, I don't myself, I'm not an expert there, but it's, it's uh, one of the prophecies that they have is that we're all going to be living with less. We're going to be living. It, this is something that's really going to affect the middle class because mm-hmm. they're going to be losing their homes. It, it's it's a, a major rethink, and so this is how it all works. It, so it's going to be a strange paradox that we're going to be living in, and yeah. it almost it's almost going to be like a post-pandemic twilight zone. I mean, if somehow or another you can take your cameras there and take out the color and make it black and white, perhaps maybe Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone will pop in and do a cameo appearance. <laughs> yeah, it it certainly does feel like we're already there to a certain extent, and that's that really is something that we will uh, that we will continue to follow. And I think that you know it's good to have conversations like this one to talk about exactly where we're at, and to also remind us of the context. I mean, so much of what politicians in Washington talk about now they act as if we're just in this you know one month time frame where that's all we can look back at and they don't take into account everything that has happened and all of the policies that they have put into place over the last two years certainly Sanchez from California I appreciate you taking the time to call in now We've talked a little bit about President Biden and his trip to Europe. We know that he is there to kind of try to smooth things over with his NATO allies to make sure that everyone is on board. And in doing so, he also gave a speech to U.S. troops who were in Poland. Now, if you know Joe Biden, you know that there are times where... I guess I should say he says certain things and then the White House or his people of the moment have to come back and say, no, no, that's not really what he meant. And we got another another version of that that was a, a tongue-in-cheek comment, to say the least. A lot of people hoping he didn't mean what he actually said. We've got a clip of that. Take a listen to it. No, but the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts, and I'm sure you're observing it. And I don't mean just the military, which is we've been trained in since back when they uh, Russia moved into uh, in, in the southeast southeast um, Ukraine. But also the average citizen. Look at how they're stepping up. Look at how they're stepping up. And you're going to see when you're there, and some of you have been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women, young people standing, standing in the middle of front of a damn tank, just saying, I'm not leaving. I'm holding my ground. They're incredible. But they take a lot of inspiration from us. And you know, a woman who just died, the Secretary of State, used to have an expression. She said, we are the essential nation. It sounds like a bit of a hyperbole, but the truth of the matter is, You are the organizing principle around which the rest of the world is, the free world is moving. 
So of course we get uh, of course we get a Madeleine Albright quote in there. You've got a one more criminal quoting another. I guess is only fitting. However, he also threw in that comment that U.S. troops would see Ukraine when they got there. That they would see Ukrainian troops and Ukrainian people when they got to the country. Now, of course, the White House is saying, "Oh, okay, he didn't he didn't really mean that. We're not actually sending U.S. troops to Ukraine." And that's been the biggest thing right now is that if the U.S. if NATO send troops into Ukraine, then they are looking at a direct conflict with Russia, which of course then kicks off World War III. And so the U.S. has been very, very careful up until this point, up until they let Joe Biden talk about it. They've been very careful with the language that they have used because they know that they are actively sending troops all around Ukraine. And of course, at the same time, as Biden noted there, they're training Ukrainian troops. They're providing weapons and assistance to them. However, they've been very careful about not sending U.S. troops into Ukraine to fight in this conflict against Russia. So when he makes a statement like that, at a time like right now, when tensions are already heightened all around, when Biden is already warning and claiming that Putin is going to use chemical weapons and that the U.S. is going to respond, that raises a lot of concerns, even if he's just having a classic Biden moment where he just spouts off and says whatever he feels like and still Words have consequences. My goodness. All right, let's bring in our next caller now, our daily caller. Rather, we've got Tarif from New Orleans. Tarif, welcome to the show. I have several comments. Um, my first comment is this, um, that Supreme Court judge candidate, um, I forgot her name. Ketanji Brown Jackson, I believe. Yeah, she should step down and let the other um, African-American female become, um, get the Supreme Court nomination. She's I don't like her judgment on certain cases. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Time is dealing with the UK. We sent 10 diplomats to India, and India called it called called off the meeting with the uh, UK diplomats because they know what the what they was going to be asked to do, which is to stand against Russia. But that ain't going to happen. So, so what the Indians did, they clo they, clo they uh, called off the meeting and. Some Chinese diplomats went to India to discuss certain topics, and it was welcome. So that's a big thing. So my, my second comment, my third comment is dealing with the. Uh, I found I found out the correct names is um is from yesterday is Rosemount Seneca, which is an investment firm that was tied into the Bayou Labs in Ukraine, and also was work they was working with Meta Biota, right. So they was working with the um, bio labs in um, Ukraine. In my last comments, done with the um, for if journalists want to change the world, they have to stand up and start releasing documentation articles to push the for the freedom of journalists eyes to start doing it now. While the U.S. now is the U.S. deep state or corrupt government is now weak right now because the world starting working up, especially in the South, and start re releasing things now. To implement change, because if you don't do it, it things don't continue to get worse. You need to shed light on the corruption, corruption in the U.S. and NATO by releasing documents now. That's the best time to do it. While the uh, Western world, the Western power leech is weak, start releasing documents now. You know, classify files, make sure it's everything above board. Start doing it now. Thank you for taking my call.
Absolutely. Thank you so much for your call. And I think that's a really interesting approach to it. And certainly it feels like there's so much chaos going on right now. And I think it also does, it brings up the case of Julian Assange, which is that the U.S. government has tried so hard to use Assange as sort of the symbol to say, do not do what he did or else we are going to come after you and make your life absolute hell. And, you know, it it doesn't matter if we have any reason to actually go after you other than the fact that you embarrass the U.S. military complex. However, we will continue to do that anyway. Now, at the same time, when it comes to kind of those shifting back and forth in terms of geopolitical ties, I know that that has been a really big topic at hand as well, because we're in a situation where now China and India are kind of taking a step back and they're looking at the West and they're looking at what the West is doing and they're concerned about the ways in which it is trying to cut Russia off from the civilized world because that's exactly what we are seeing happen right now. And I know this is kind of something that we've called or that we've talked about a little bit this week, but now we've got the latest update on it, which is that in Biden's meetings with EU leaders, they are now promising some sort of new deal that is going to move towards replacing Europe's reliance on Russian energy, because that's their big fixation of the moment, is that Europe says, look, we can't just cut off our reliance on Russian energy because we rely on them for nearly half of our natural gas supplies. So now the United States is coming in and they are acting as if they are going to save the day, right? And the latest plan, the U.S. and a few quote-unquote like-minded partners will increase exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe by 15 billion cubic meters this year. So the U.S. is coming in and saying, hey, we've got this supply. We are going to help out. And now Biden also mentioned that while he was speaking earlier, and I want to take a listen to the latest clip because he also brings in his clean energy policy. Take a listen to this. Efficiency of gas. This build-out, this build-out will occur in a way that is consistent with, not in conflict with, the net zero climate goal that we're shooting for. It's going to take some time to adjust gas supply chains and infrastructure that is built the last decade, for the last decade. So we're going to have to make sure that families in Europe can get through this winter and the next while we're building an infrastructure for a diversified, resilient, and clean energy future. At the same time, this crisis also presents an opportunity. It's a catalyst, a catalyst that will drive the investments we need to double down on our clean energy goals and accelerate progress toward our net zero emissions future. That's what the second part of this initiative is all about. The United States and the European Union are going to work together to take concrete measures to reduce dependence on natural gas, period. So it's interesting because he's saying there that they're going to move the dependence to U.S. natural gas, and then eventually they're going to eliminate it altogether. At least that's how I took it from his comments. Now, the question then becomes, how exactly is this going to work? Because like a lot of Biden's energy policies, it's great in theory. However, actually putting it into action is another thing. And it either 
hasn't worked out or it costs a lot of money and leaves the average taxpayer paying a lot more right now in terms of those energy bills. So already reports are noting that this is not going to be as easy as it sounds, saying that it will take huge investments and that getting more liquefied natural gas to Europe could be difficult because U.S. export facilities are already operating at capacity and most new terminals are still only in the planning stages. Most U.S. shipments already go to Europe. Now, on top of that, the report's going to say that even if more gas can be shipped to Europe, the continent may struggle to receive it. Import terminals are in coastal areas and Europe's pipeline system doesn't have all the connections needed to send the natural gas throughout the throughout the continent. Now, gas prices are high from an ongoing energy crunch that we've seen over the last year. And of course, all of the latest tensions have led to very volatile energy markets. Terminals and tankers around the globe are fully booked already, leaving customers competing for available shipments. And we've seen this where China has notably had more and more demand, and so it's left countries in the European Union struggling to keep up, struggling to get that supply. So it's a really big promise from the United States. However, like so many of these policies, it's going to take a while. And that's not helpful whatsoever for the average consumer who has just survived the last several months of seeing their bills just absolutely skyrocket, of struggling to keep a roof over their head, struggling to pay for their businesses, their homes, whatever it may be. And now they're looking at these politicians that are standing there and they're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to fix everything. It's just going to be several years down the road. And getting to that point is going to cost you a lot of money in the meantime. So it brings us right back to that place where we wonder, okay, what are we actually accomplishing here? And is there any way to do this in a way that doesn't hurt the consumers and at the same time moves forward with those clean energy policies. Now, ideally, there would be. However, of course, you now have the U.S. and European leaders in a position where they are trying to work to cut Russia off from the civilized world altogether. And so because they are so fixated on that, they are once again standing there telling the average consumer, look, you are going to be paying more because we want to cut off Russia. You are going to continue to struggle because our goal is to essentially cut Russia off altogether and to make them suffer but in making Russia suffer, you're also making the average citizen suffer. That is something that I would argue is so important to keep in mind as we watch these speeches from Biden, as he meets with these NATO leaders and he tries to convince them to get on board with everything that he's saying, because at the end of the day, it is not as clean cut as he's making it sound. And any media coverage that makes it sound like this is going to be easy and is going to just fall into place truly are not paying attention. And it's been notable to see the fact that there are multiple reports out there that kind of include they'll have Biden's comments and then they include a few comments of their own noting that, look, this is a great dream. This is a great campaign presidential promise, however you want to look at it, but actually making it happen is going to be difficult. Now, we are coming up on our first break, but after that, we've got our first guest of the day. We are going to be looking into 
all of the latest when it comes to the latest cancel culture trends, the latest comments from Biden. What do they mean in the broader scope of NATO and its continued involvement with the war in Ukraine? We'll be getting into all of that after the break. You don't want to miss it here on The Backstory. Welcome back. This is The Backstory, and I'm Rachel Blevins. We're now going to bring in our first guest of the hour. Joining us now is Nico House. He's a political activist, broadcast journalist, and the founder and CEO of the MCSC Network. Nico, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Rachel. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to start off with the latest hit piece, which just happens to come from Politico. And they're not just going after RT and Sputnik. They're actually going after Rumble because of the fact that Rumble is refusing to cancel RT and Sputnik. What do you make of this latest development of cancel culture? I mean, are they just getting bored at this point? I mean, I would say that they're just getting bored because... RT, if I'm not mistaken, has been on Rumble for over a year now, if I'm if, if, if I'm not mistaken. They've been there. Um, the website, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how many people can actually go and look at the website anymore, but the website has always been backlinked to Rumble, where they even had their podcasts and things like that, where you could go, like, go to their Rumble casts straight from RT's website. Um, clearly... They're only coming after Rumble. You know, of course, they do the, the classic guilt by association thing because uh, some people who support Trump are on Rumble. Therefore, everyone on Rumble is a right wing extremist. Yeah. Right. Which we all know isn't the case. I know plenty of leftists on Rumble. I know plenty of independent journalists who are on Rumble. And obviously, I know plenty of conservatives are on Rumble, too. But you don't hear that same type of criticism about a YouTube, for example, that actually creates these algorithms that kind of cultivate and foster uh, an echo chamber where they still allow the same right wing people who are on Rumble to be on YouTube anyway. But they don't have those criticisms for YouTube until obviously something comes down the pipeline when they're told, hey, be mad at this one person. Then they usually look the other way. You know, that person goes on Fox News, reminds them that they're a team player. They play for either the Democrats or Republicans. And then, um, you know, they they look the other way. Steven Crowder still on on YouTube. Right. Uh, Scott Adams and all these people, uh, Ben Shapiro, they're still all on YouTube. But they don't leverage those same um, criticisms at YouTube because it's not really about. Uh, like the audacity of of right wingers or any of that type of stuff. It's really about narrative control and limiting alternatives. I mean, once again, we live in a capitalistic society and that's effectively what capitalism is, right? Limiting alternatives and opportunity for alternatives to emerge rather than fostering that competition. Yeah, and I know in the case of this specific article that was published, it was interesting because the reporter who wrote it actually admitted to reaching out to a number of different platforms that Sputnik Radio was hosted on and basically shaming them and saying, hey, you, you're still hosting Sputnik Radio? This is, do you realize? And one of the ones that they went after said agreed to move, remove Sputnik off of their platform 
and basically said that they had no idea that it was even on there. So it then raises the question, how is it that these the Sputnik and then RT are having such a massive impact on all of these alternative platforms that they don't even realize that these networks are on their platforms and they're just kind of falling in line because they don't want a political article written about them saying that they are fostering, you know, right-wing sentiment and allowing those users to be on their platforms. I mean, it just seems ridiculous at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, at the, and also like Sputnik in, in in RT itself, but definitely Sputnik, like they they pretended that Sputnik is is the the show itself, right? Is is it in and of itself a show? No, they have several different shows. So even if you quote unquote take Sputnik off of your platform for whatever reason, that has no there's no indication necessarily that you're actually going to get every single show that probably has a separate channel on Sputnik. Or on uh, your platform. That's what's interesting about it, right? So just because you remove Sputnik or RT off of Rumble, uh, I mean, I'm going to be on Rumble, so I think you're on Rumble. I know Mm -hmm. that a lot of people on MCSC are on Rumble. I know that people from RT are on Rumble, and they still have the same opinions, and they still have... But it's like the brand they it's all about the brand and how it looks right if you if if rumble looks like a viable alternative for the russia quote unquote brand then that means that they could be a viable alternative to anybody and it also means that the propaganda isn't as effective as it sh- as they want it to be and as they feel like it should be right cuz that you would expect based off of at least their logic, the, the establishment's logic or the logic of the globalists, if you will, mm-hmm. that the moment that they shamed RT into the ground, the way things work in the U.S. is just like whenever they took Trump off of Twitter. It isn't, I'm going to pass a law and, and pass these sanctions uh, and then ha- and then you have to do that because obviously not everybody's going to vote for it. You don't, you don't know if it's going to if it's going to be challenged by the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. So what do they do instead? The politicians who are paid off by the oligarchs tweet and tweet and badger and bully like we saw this this author do, um, and then voluntarily platforms like YouTube, who are often protected by those corrupt politicians from some of the way uh, for some of the ways they violate uh, uh, their or overstep their boundaries as far as being a platform rather than being an editor or editorial uh, page, like YouTube, Twitters of the world, Facebooks, they all, Amazon, I'm Amazon when it comes to their servers, uh, Mm -hmm. even Apple to some degree, like they all do what the government, what specifically the State Department wants without there ever having to be a law passed for them to do so. And that's what, so they expect Rumble being that, they, like, honestly, it does have a lot of the same type of investors and same players involved with its creation. They're expecting places like Rumble to pull out. Mm-hmm. That's what they're, they're, they're and it, so when it doesn't have, like just a Spotify, same thing. Spotify, Rumble, those, those major platforms that have massive backings uh, financially, they're expecting them to act as a YouTube or a Google or whatever would. And then when it doesn't happen, then that's a chink in their armor that's being exposed and the State Department can't have that. Absolutely, they can't have that. And we saw, you know, kind of this phenomenon, I remember with Parler, 
in the aftermath of January 6th, where they were quite literally canceled from the internet. I mean, they showed just how much power these big tech companies have if they really want to go after somebody. And they took Parler down off of everywhere and then only allowed them back whenever they agreed to follow the quote-unquote terms of service. And that basically changed everything about their website, right? They used Parler because it actually got popular for a minute. They used it as the tool to show these other websites, look, this can happen to you if you get into this territory where we decide that we want to target you. I mean, what kind of a precedent does that set just overall? Yeah, I mean, and it's... um. It's truly fascism and it's like it like it's the most obvious case of fascism because what we saw with Parler, what happened was obviously they wouldn't remove Trump or the other people that Twitter banned within that same uh, what 24 to 48 hour period um, that were involved in the um, election integrity. Uh, or at least questioning the election integrity, even lawyers who just were doing their job that they were hired to do, which was taking a case and putting it in front of the courts, they were being banned uh, because of their association with Trump in that matter. And when they wouldn't remove Trump, what did uh, AOC and Cory Booker's of the world and uh, you know all, all those types, they, wouldn't, they, they went to Twitter. Then they said, we should find Amazon if they don't remove Parler from their servers. We should punish them. We have to threaten regulation. So they, what they did, instead of engaging in the political process and in the legislative process to do this, you know, the right way. I mean, if you want to call it that, because once again, no one would support it. I'm sure yeah. they subverted the legislative process and they subverted the legal process by threatening publicly letting those tweets go viral and then basically forcing those uh, uh, like Amazon, other servers and hosts and like the Apple store and all that good stuff uh, and Google Play Store. Like they then banned Parler off of their servers. And eventually I think Parler was allowed back on, but Parler had to basically create an entirely new server uh, to protect themselves, which obviously is expensive. So it's like, what was the criteria? It's like they violated your terms of service. But so why didn't you ban Twitter whenever they had Trump on this entire time when they clearly yeah. violated your terms of service? Why didn't you violate like like it, it's always somebody banning the terms of service. And, you know, based off of their logic, they've been banned. They've been violating these terms for some time. Right. They say, well, Trump is even though he didn't really literally claim violence, he did at some point say something like that. Similar, like we was talking about North Korea eight months ago. I was like, OK, so why didn't <laughs> Amazon ban Twitter off their servers? Why didn't Apple ban them from their Apple store? Yeah. Because it's not a, it's not about that, right? It's about the control. And so when you have a corporation making decisions that the p politicians are forcing on them because of the, you know, the oligarchy and the state department, and they're completely usurping the will of the people, that would be fascism. Yeah. It's literally fascism. Mm -hmm. And everybody's just really casual, acting really casual about what we've, because we said it was going to be a bad precedent then. I remember even seeing you talking about it. But mm -hmm. look what's happened since. It hasn't slowed down. It's gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's always how they do it. And there's always people that cheer it on. And I never understand that even when people have been deplatformed that I completely disagreed with all around, I still was right there saying 
this is going to set a dangerous precedent and it's not going to stop there. And we've exactly seen that continue again and again. Now, while I have you on here, I want to switch topics just a little bit to get into these latest comments that we heard from President Biden over in Poland. Now, it's notable because when he makes a comment like the one that he made where he sat there and he told U.S. troops, oh, you're going to see, you know, Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people when you get there, the White House just immediately jumps in and does damage control and says, oh, no, no, that's clearly not what he went, what he meant. Yet, given that tensions are as high as they are right now, given that we are on the brink of World War III in so many ways, and we know that sending U.S. troops into Ukraine would trigger that, why is he making comments like that? And then the White House is just stepping right over it and acting as if people shouldn't be concerned about that. Because that's what he meant. What <laughs> <laughs> like the the other the other questions would be like, um, when do you generally see a president uh, go abroad to speak to a group of soldiers yeah. when they're either actively engaged in a war or a conflict, or they're eminently. <laughs> they're going to be engaged in mm -hmm. a conflict of some sort. And it's to galvanize the troops as their commander in chief. Uh, you see this all the time when uh, the B Bush and Obama and Joe Biden, uh, Hillary, even at some point, they've taken random trips to Afghanistan or Iraq to like kind of quote unquote remind the troops what they're fighting for. Uh, so in this particular case, not only do you have a president going over uh, abroad and talking to troops, which is like, I can't believe y'all actually let Biden leave the White House. It talks <laughs> to anybody at this point, but that's neither here nor there. But then it's like, why are y'all in Poland exactly? Mm -hmm. Why is the 82nd Airborne in Poland? 82nd Airborne is in Fort Bragg, for those of you who don't know. Um, I was in 18th Airborne Corps, actually, which is their neighbor in Fort Bragg. But um, where 82nd goes, uh, there is no conversation to be had of what comes next. If 82nd is in your neighborhood, it's to shoot, shoot things up. That's what they're there for. And I have zero idea why they would be in Poland unless Joe Biden's intention was to deploy them at some point. And like you said, it seems like at this moment, he is actively seeking to start World War III. Actively. Yeah. Like, like it's... The fact that he would even like they can't even say, hey, he just misspoke. Like, no, you know what he meant. No, we don't. You're talking to a rapid deployment unit that deploys the places that they're trying to blow up. And he's there talking about it. And we don't know why any second is in Poland to begin with. Mm -hmm. And yet they're, you know. No, that's not what you, that's not what he meant. Then what did he mean then? Just say he misspoke then. But don't pretend like he didn't just say what he just said and that all of the circumstances are adding up to the conclusion that he came to, which is that American troops, for one reason or another, are going to be in the Ukraine. And I think that you and I both know that the moment one bullet from an American gun that was probably made in China touches a Russian soldier, all hell is breaking loose. Yeah. Yeah, and it it is frustrating to see this unfolding situation where the U.S. approach to it has been to say, oh, well, we don't have troops in Ukraine. However, we just have troops 
all around Ukraine. Oh, and we're training the Ukrainian military and we're sending them billions of dollars in funding and also weapons. I mean, what kind of message is that sending to Russia right now as they're watching this ramp up the whole time the U.S. is saying, oh, we don't have troops in Ukraine. It's just literally everything else we're doing that is leading to World War Three possibly kicking off. Yeah, and I wouldn't even let me just say I don't I wouldn't doubt that we actually do have troops in the Ukraine uh, working undercover because, I mean, we have a lot of troops that do speak Russian fluently. Um, we have a lot of intelligence. Like, I mean, learning Russian is a pretty easy like job to get if you want or learning. I would say learning Russian is easy to do if you choose intelligence in the military or specifically in the army. That's my experience because you can just choose it. And there are hundreds of them. There's an, it's, I was part of an entire intelligence brigade, okay? Wow. Like, this isn't difficult to find people to infiltrate uh, this. I mean, hell, we, we had people, uh, officers, training the Azov Battalion, military officers from the, U, for, from the U.S., training the Azov Battalion right under everybody's nose, training literal Nazis right under. So what, and people aren't even realizing that happened until just recently. And this happened in 2017, 2018, and as early as 2020. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what, what's this, who's to say that we already don't have troops there? Now, these would just be the official ones, you know, but we, they said we didn't have troops in Syria either. And I know for a fact, we had troops there way longer than what we were claiming to, right? Before the quote unquote red line was crossed. So the message that they're sending to Putin is one I think that he's already well received, which is y'all want war. Yeah. The problem with that message though, is you're not just sending this message to Putin. You're sending it to Xi Jinping in China. You're saying you're sending it to Assad in Syria, you're sending it to to Modi in India, like the the allies, even Saudi Arabia seems to have picked its side at this point. Israel seems to be because they're close allies with both countries. They, I don't know who they're going to work for at the end of the day. Uh, I would lean towards the U.S., but who knows? Because yeah. I don't know how the people feel, the Jewish people in Israel feel about, you know, supporting Nazis. Well, they weren't too happy with the Zelensky's recent speech where he tried to convince them that the next Holocaust was happening right now in Ukraine. He got some pretty, pretty big backlash on that. And it's interesting because now Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who has been like MIA for the last few weeks, it feels like he's just been hiding under a rock somewhere, I guess. Now, all of a sudden, he's planning a trip to Israel to go smooth things over. But you're right. It's like all of these top leaders around the world are watching this conflict and they're watching exactly to see how it breaks out. And, you know, it's been notable to see some of the speeches that Biden's making in addition to what they claim are just his mistaken comments. He's sitting there. He's acknowledging that we're looking at a global food crisis. He's acknowledging that we're looking at a continuation of skyrocketing energy prices. And it's as if all of these things that he's saying, yes, 
these are going to be bad, horrible, terrible things that are going to happen and, and impact all of the U.S. as well as the world, that he acts as if he's not actively taking steps to make those problems that much worse by trying to completely cut Russia off from the rest of the world. I mean, how is that justified, especially in the minds of voters who already really aren't in favor of Biden right now, given his poll ratings? Well, he's acting like he doesn't plan on taking steps to fix those problems because he's not planning on taking steps to fix those <laughs> problems. I mean, in his speech, I feel like he made that pretty clear, right? He's like, hey, man, about to be some food shortage, y'all. I know y'all heard the rumors, so I'm just letting y'all know. About to be a lot of hungry people out here. So um, good luck. I'm <laughs> uh, pretty sure there's somebody I hired at some point to handle that. They're clearly not doing their job well enough, but, you know, Sorry, Charlie. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's, I mean, but that's basically been the Biden administration, right? Hey, guys, I know it's a pandemic, made everybody quit their jobs and get, you know, jabbed and all that good stuff. But um, don't got no money for you. Sorry, you're just going to have to eat it. I know I told you I was going to give you this money, (laughs) but I ain't got it. And even the money that I gave you is really just your money. You just don't know it yet. It's going to come back out of your taxes. But that's not the hero. Don't worry about that. But good luck. Right. But I got some money for this war, though. I definitely got money for that. That's literally what he's been doing the entirety of his administration is telling people there's a problem, omitting the parts where our government, our federal government is the direct reason for the problem, and then not even pretending to have a solution to the problem. It's like, hey, man, good luck, guys. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And or he'll throw some random person on it. He'll say, all right, Kamala Harris is going to come in here and she's going to fix the entire global food shortage by herself. Uh, And just if there's no no crisis, like there's no no, no problem. And then he's like, actually, like two, three weeks later, after, after when it's convenient. Hey, remember I told you there wasn't a problem three weeks ago. That exact thing that I said wasn't a problem actually is a massive problem that we don't intend to do anything about. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, 24 he, hours. No, we ain't got no chemical weapons. That's crazy. Actually, hold up real quick. Let me talk to you. well I mean goodness that was that's been the case with and it's notable because not only is it Biden talking and saying that but the media kind of takes that stance too I mean when it came to the story about biolabs in Ukraine immediately the media said no this is Russian disinformation we're not talking about this this doesn't exist and then they got Victoria Nuland literally testifying on it saying that there are U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, yeah, they're there, but now you still can't talk about it. I mean, that that really is, at least Biden's got the same approach as the media, it feels like right now, which is that they're all in this position of expecting the public not to ask for information, not to ask for solutions, and just to accept whatever the crisis is of the day and to just kind of move on. I mean, does it seem that way to you from your standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. And like, let's be honest, this has kind of been the standard, I think, for at least the majority of our lives. This has been, hey, you just got to gotta deal with it. This is just how things are, man. For some reason, even though I don't think we get any food from Russia, not to any, like nothing significant, we're going to have a food shortage. And it's, they never actually give you an explanation. They just say because of Putin, because, mm-hmm. you know, because of Putin's war, for some reason, we're going to have food shortage. Well, it's like, but we've already actually been having this issue. 
That, that that's already happening. It's been ha- because of Putin, we're going to have a supply chain issue that happened six or seven months ago because of Putin. The gas prices are high. So how are you going to explain the fact that the gas prices were rising? That if you did the math, look at the trend. This is exactly where they would be at anyway. Regardless right. of if there if there was a war, there was there's there's never you every single time that you we bring up the fact and it's by the way, I do not think that it's coincidental that this is coming this this whole war is coming up, quote unquote war, or this attempt to seemingly start one, uh, is coming up around midterms. And obviously yeah. subsequently the the election. That's probably when it'll, when it'll hit its apex. Because it's way easier to be like, it's actually just Putin's fault that all this is happening, than to be like, guys, our bad. Just give us two more years to figure this out. Like, and maybe things will get better. Like, nobody's buying that when you've had the house and the Senate, and mm-hmm. the executive branch, and a lot of gubernatorial seats around the country. Like, you, you have zero excuse for any of this. You, you, he claimed to be the guy that could bring both sides of the, of the, of the chamber together, uh, Republican and Democrat, and get things done because of his experience. The problem is, you don't even need to do that. You mm-hmm. just get the Democrats under control, and we can <laughs> fix the majority of these issues. And he's he's deciding actively making a choice not to. And to be frank, he's not even really making that many excuses for it outside of the Putin excuse. But for the entirety of last year, he didn't have an excuse. Hey, man, things are crazy. Sorry. Yeah. Pandemic, something, something. Anyway, see you guys tomorrow. Like, that's basically where he's been at. And so it, the supply chain issue, the gas issue, the food shortage... They're going to keep pointing pointing towards Putin because they I don't really see a scenario where they survive anyway. But there is no way that they don't have a scapegoat and still think they even retain even some of the seats that they're poised to lose uh, this midterm election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, do you see, I mean, for the average American voter who has already been struggling, now they're looking at Biden suddenly decide that he's going to blame everything on Russia and on Putin as the new really villain of 2022 that they're revamping. Do you see the average American voter actually buying that and going along with it or? Nope. I'm going to tell you, so I was on my friend's uh, Peter Feliciano show yesterday. And I'm going to tell you exactly what he said. And this is a guy that's pretty uh, active politically. Uh, he does focus more on social issues, but, you know, he, he's a voter and all, all his friends are and uh, all of our friends are. And he said, you know what? When I first heard about this issue with Ukraine, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't really care because, you know, I got bills to pay. And mm-hmm. like, that's something that most people just don't care about. We don't even talk about it. So all of a sudden you go from not talking about this issue at all to, Hey, I know we literally never talk about this stuff, um, but this whole situation in the Ukraine is causing all of these issues because Putin. Most people are going to be like, you, you, you can kiss all of it. Like, I don't want to hear that. I have no idea. Like, they don't care about Putin. They're like, hold on, because if that was the issue, right, say if Russia and our relationship currently with Russia is the issue, why didn't that cause these exact same issues when we had been sanctioning Russia because of the whole Russiagate scandal where tensions were just as strenuous? I mean, obviously not to the point of being on the brink of World War III. Actually, no, I don't even say that. We mm-hmm. definitely have been on the brink of World War III for like four or five years now, yeah. ever since the 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 vote in Crimea that 
you know, mm-hmm. ha- caused them to rejoin Russia, right? Like they were claiming that Russia invaded Georgia when that wasn't the case. They have been blaming Russia for for rigging in, uh, uh, our elections, which literally was not the case. Like they have been doing this and yet we didn't have these problems uh, then like we're having now, despite the strenuous relationship that the U.S. and Russia have. So that's not going to be an excuse because they're going to be like, oh, so what you're saying is because it's what they're this And if, if Trump and his team were smart, is what they would say. So what you're saying is under Trump's administration, we can have these strenuous relationships and it won't matter yeah. to our economy. That's what people are going to think. But when you came in, you couldn't handle this. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go back to what I know then. Even if it may not be that good, it's definitely not as bad as this. That's what people will think. Yeah. Because anything at this point, let's be real. Like, like just I'm probably not going to vote in this election, to be honest with you, um, Mm. because I just don't believe electoral system is legitimate. But if I was the average voter. Like, would you even like can it get much worse than this? Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I guess I I guess we're about to find out whether or not it can get much worse. I know this is a conversation that we could continue to have all day long, but unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it right there. Politi- political activist and journalist Nico House, it has been so great to have you on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, coming up in the next hour, we are going to get into looking even deeper at the U.S. economy, at exactly where it is headed. And we're also going to get into a recent report coming out of the U.K. in which they claim that they have found the new front for Russian propaganda and exactly how it is spreading. You won't believe this one. We'll be right back after this break here on The Backstory. are live from America just outside the matrix. It's time now for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Rachel Blevins and this is The Backstory. Now, in our second hour coming up, we are going to get into those skyrocketing energy prices, warnings of a global food shortage, and just where the U.S. economy is headed and what you need to know in the days to come. We're also going to take a look at what the U.K. says is the latest front for Russian propaganda. You won't believe this one. It is an interesting story, to say the least, and I will leave it right there and let you see what what it is when we we get there. On top of that, in the first half hour, we are going to be taking your calls at 202-521-1320. You're listening to The Backstory. Now, when it comes to this hour, we have a lot of topics we want to get into, but I want to start off by mentioning an important story that really has not received nearly enough coverage from the mainstream media, and that is the ongoing crisis in Yemen. Now, to say that this is a crisis is an understatement, and this weekend actually marks the seventh anniversary of the war in Yemen. Now, the U.S. has gone above and 
and beyond in its support for the Saudi for Saudi Arabia's led coalition in this war. And it has been absolutely devastating. I mean, the numbers that we do know are that nearly 400,000 people have died. And we're talking about the poorest country in the region already, let alone given everything that they have gone through. You've got millions of people that are dealing with hunger and starvation and disease on a daily basis. You've got more than 50 15.6 million people that have fallen into extreme poverty. And the latest United Nations reports on Yemen have found that they expect that 1.3 million people will die as a result of this war by 2030. And they say that around 70% of those deaths will be children under the age of five years old. And when we're talking about the suffering in Yemen, we're talking about suffering on a level that here in the United States, we can't even wrap our minds around it because we have no idea how bad it is. And yet, instead of covering it, the media pays no attention to it. They just kind of gloss over it. And at the same time, politicians do the exact same thing. However, when it comes to the current war in Ukraine, you see wall-to-wall media coverage. You see people across social media tweeting and saying that they are going to pray for Ukraine and that they are going to stand up for the Ukrainian people. You see the media coverage alone. It talks about the refugees. It talks about the civilian casualties. And it really, all of the media talking heads, all of the politicians suddenly claim that they care about civilians which is great, except for the fact that it doesn't extend beyond Ukraine because over in Yemen, not only is the suffering from the civilians there on another level entirely, but it's being actively supported by the U.S. and its allies. And not only is the Biden administration not slapping sanctions on Saudi Arabia. Not only are they not looking to cut Saudi Arabia off from the civilized world in the same way that they are doing with Russia right now, claiming, of course, that they're concerned about civilians, but they're taking the opposite approach to it. And the U.S. right now is trying even harder to get on Saudi Arabia's good side because Guess what? By trying to cut Russia off from the rest of the world, they are threatening the stability of the energy market, which Russia contributes heavily to. Now, when it comes to the actual oil supplies that the U.S. gets from Russia and from Saudi Arabia, it may not make up the bulk of U.S. supply. However, it does have a significant impact. And they know that if they are to cut off Russia to ban all Russian energy imports, and then at the same time, anything happens with Saudi Arabia and that supply, that that is going to cause chaos here in the U.S. They also know at the same time that Saudi Arabia is in a position where for the last year now, they've sided with Russia when it comes to their plans for production. And that's been a really big deal because Biden has been sitting there. He's been watching gas prices skyrocket and he's been calling on OPEC plus, which includes Saudi Arabia and Russia. He's calling on the cartel to increase their production more than planned. And the cartel has said, no, they've, they've looked at the situation and they've said, no, we're doing just fine. It's been great watching these prices go up because that's that means that we get more profits as a result of that. So while that's happening, 
All the while, that puts the United States in a position where it's getting a little bit concerned that it's losing Saudi Arabia's ear, especially given the latest reports that literally Saudi Arabia has been declining President Biden's calls altogether. Well, then at the same time, Saudi Arabia goes over to China and they start talking and Saudi Arabia mentions the fact that maybe they may look at processing payments with the Chinese yuan. Now, that's a big deal as well because that hurts the United States. And the United States is not happy about that. So the U.S. is in a position right now where they are going above and beyond to try to make sure that they are still maintaining favor with Saudi Arabia. But in doing so... What they're doing is we saw these reports from this week that the Biden administration is signing off on a new batch of Patriot interceptors that they're going to send off to Saudi Arabia, which they previously denied last year because last year was the time when Biden was just coming into office and he was claiming for a moment that he actually cared about the civilians in Yemen and was going to, you know, hold Saudi Arabia to account to a certain extent, which clearly that has not happened in any way, shape or form. And now the Biden administration is making itself look ridiculous because they are showing that They don't care at all. Once again, after seven years and everything that we've seen happen in Yemen, they're showing they don't care at all for the civilians there. They just care about keeping Saudi Arabia happy and about keeping that Saudi oil flowing. That's something to keep in mind as you're watching these politicians fall all over themselves to claim that they really do care about the civilians in Ukraine and that we need to go above and beyond to punish Russia as a result of this. They claim that in your daily lives that you need to be paying more at the gas pump, that you need to be, you know, taking on 40-year high inflation because all of that's Russia's fault, according to them. And it has nothing to do with anything that the Federal Reserve has done or any of their policies over the last two years. And yet, All the while, the U.S. is complicit in actively supporting genocide in Yemen. And that's something that even the media doesn't necessarily cover. They'll they'll talk about it from time to time when it's popular, but they don't show you just how awful it is. They don't show you just how much U.S. defense contractors and arms dealers have profited off of this conflict and how much they're continuing to do so because... They're rolling in the profits. They don't care about the children in Yemen who are quite literally disfigured because they're starving to death or they're battling a number of diseases that they have no medical treatment for. They don't care about that at all because the United States is so desensitized from every other part of the world that when politicians stand up there and they tell you that they are, you know, going to take on Russia and do this and that, then people just kind of shrug, maybe in some ways, because they don't feel like there's anything that they can do about that or they don't know what they're supposed to do in order to counter anything that those politicians are saying. However, the hypocrisy of it is just mind-boggling at the end of the day for the United States to care, especially, I mean, last week it was the 19th anniversary of the Iraq invasion and you had 
all of these politicians claim that, you know, you you look back at exactly where we were 19 years ago. You look back at the fact that you had the architects of the Iraq war openly lying to the American people, knowing at the time that they were lying and doing so anyway, lying Americans into a war. And then we compare it to today's situation where we you have U.S. politicians claiming they care about civilians, clearly not showing that given not just Yemen, but also their foreign policies around the world, given the fact that they are in a situation now where Biden does have troops lined up all around Ukraine. And it does make you wonder, what is that troop presence for? Because they are sitting there taunting Russia. They are sitting there provoking a possible conflict. And no outcome from that benefits the American people whatsoever. It may benefit the arms dealers and the defense contractors and the top politicians if they, if you want to call it that. However, at the end of the day, when it really comes down to it, getting into a situation where you have literal nuclear war breakout or when you have two nuclear powers going up against each other and setting off World War III, that's not good for anyone. So when you have the president of the United States just dancing his way over to Europe, trying to convince European leaders to get on board with his strategy, openly admitting to the world that, oh, there's going to be a global food crisis. I mean, those are the statements that he is making. This is an incredibly troubling precedent that he is setting. And yet, back here in the U.S., so much of it is just expected to be business as usual and not to see the writing on the wall from what Biden is saying right now and how those European leaders, how the Russian leaders, how leaders really all around the world are supposed to take it. And I know that that is a little grim to get into for a Friday. However, given that we are coming up on the seventh anniversary of the war in Yemen, given the fact that it's still, even in all of the places where attention has been called to it, it clearly hasn't been nearly enough because clearly there's no meaningful change. I mean, that was one of the things that Biden said that, okay, he was going to make sure that his administration did something different. Well, Clearly, it's not doing that. Clearly, whatever it's doing is not working. It's not leading to any sort of resolution in Yemen. It's not getting Saudi Arabia to back down. And in fact, instead of the U.S. being the one to push for any sort of accountability for its ally, which is Saudi Arabia, instead that puts the U.S. in a situation where right now Saudi Arabia is more powerful than it has been in a long time because they're just sitting back. They're watching the fact that the world needs their supplies. They're watching the fact that countries like China, Russia, and India are backing off from the United States. And they're eating that up because for them, that means more power for them. And yet at the same time, for Saudi Arabia, they now have the U.S. begging them for attention and trying to make sure that everything is good. And Saudi Arabia is just eating it up. And that's something that should be on the minds of every American as they continue to look at this conflict just where it's headed. Now we are going to take a quick break, but coming right up after that, we are going to get into what the UK is saying is the latest front for Russia Gate. You don't want to miss this one. We'll be back right after this break here on The Backstory. 
and welcome back to The Backstory. I'm Rachel Blevins. We are now going to take a look at what the UK is claiming is the latest front for Russian propaganda. They claim that the Kremlin is getting to people and that they're doing it through prank phone calls. I am not kidding on that one. We've got a clip of a call between UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace and who he believed, I suppose, was the Ukrainian Prime Minister in a conversation between the two of them. Take a listen to this clip. I understand that you are probably fed up with this question, but I would like to ask how else can the UK support us in this difficult time for you? As you... I can't say where I've been, but I've just been to look at more of our anti-air capacity to give you and making sure that we are getting it into the country as quickly as possible. Oh, I mean, um, of course, we're currently discussing the idea of a defensive alliance with a country with a nuclear weapon, and it would be great if the UK became such a country. So how do you feel about the idea of uh, union between our countries? And, for example, it was wonderful to open official British training centers in our country. Well, look, I, I think we are very keen to support you in any negotiations. And I know my understanding is President Zelensky is quite keen uh, to see the United Kingdom uh, alongside Ukraine in these negotiations uh, because of the experience that we every every well we didn't have but the bad experience of the minsk agreement where just france and germany were there and i think there is a desire for the uk and the us and i think all of those subjects including a security alliance i think is something to discuss uh, with you on those negotiations he was just talking away there, and we are going to keep talking away with our next guest. Joining me now is Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik News digital media producer and analyst. Wyatt, welcome to the show. Rachel, thanks so much for having me. Now, you heard that clip from that call there. What do you make of this and of this claim that this is the new front for Kremlin propaganda to spread? I mean, I thought that prank calls had uh, gone away a long, long time ago. Yeah, no, uh, certainly hard to blame you if you thought that the uh, prank call, phone calls were uh, a little bit out of style. You're not wrong, uh, but uh, certainly, you know, seemed to fool the British defense minister. Uh, if, we, if we'd have had a little more time to, to keep listening to that clip, it would have gotten pretty interesting quite soon um, because basically uh, – the main point of interest here is that uh, the British Defense Secretary is openly entertaining what he clearly believes to be quite serious efforts to obtain nuclear weapons uh, by a man who, by, for all intents and purposes, he seems to think is the Ukrainian prime minister. Uh, you know, later on in that call, he, he uh, very openly, uh, he, uh, uh, Mr. Wallace sort of... Uh, declares this to be a, a uh, I want to use his exact words, I don't want to misquote him here, but uh, he says that uh, the UK, quote, will support Ukraine if they want to explore new weapons. Um, and, you know, there are even clips that are, that are cut out of this segment that are the, the authors of the call uh, apparently had to remove in the interest of United Kingdom's national security. Uh, certainly, 
a number of things in this clip that are worth talking about. And, and I know, actually, the author of those, those clips, uh, Vuvan and Lexus, this uh, sort of prank call duo, uh, they just released another phone call with UK Home Secretary uh, Priti Patel. Uh, and it's, you know, we're talking about basically the third member of somebody close to the Boris Johnson administration in four years who has, man, you know, suffered a phone call uh, obviously something is going on over there across the pond and, uh, you know, maybe we need some kind of a shutdown until we figure out what, what exactly it is. Yeah, like, it it seems so simple, but at the same time, it also makes you wonder. I mean, I maybe they'll turn to FaceTime calls eventually, and then they'll have to get really creative in order to make sure, or at least the prank callers will have to get really creative. However, uh, it, it's fascinating to see on a call like this, you know, Wallace is just kind of nodding along and going along with whatever said, and yet... What is being said is that Ukraine has nuclear ambitions and they want to know if the UK is on board with that. And anyone who's paying attention would think that this would raise a number of red flags, because obviously if Ukraine has nuclear ambitions and that's something that they are legitimately pursuing, then that is going to be a much bigger conflict with Russia. And that's something that Moscow has made very clear. And you would think that the UK knows that, right? I mean, is there any kind of defense for these politicians who get on the phone and just kind of nod along because they don't want to be viewed as anti-Ukraine or as not being supportive enough to Ukraine for right now? Is it just the timing of it that's getting them into this spot? Or do you think they just genuinely aren't paying attention to what is being said? You know, it's it's a funny question because Later on, you know, in this phone call, Wallace says, I think that the UK is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. I think that we are. Uh, obviously, if you're the head of the armed forces of a government treaty, you should know yeah. just offhand whether or not your country's stated policy is that you won't help anyone get nuclear weapons, um, if only for just such situations. Uh, but... Yeah. You know, clearly this, this this nuclear question is uh, extremely important. It's a very uh, serious subject. We know uh, six, five, five days actually before the beginning of the special military operations in Ukraine by Russian forces, uh, President Zelensky warned uh, the Munich Security Conference that basically Ukraine would rip up the Budapest Memorandum um, and you know they said that if the if the guarantors to that uh, agreement, the the UK being one of them, uh, didn't give them a consultation to basically reopen the question of of their nuclear ambitions, they said that they uh, would have every right. This is a direct quote of the president: "We will have every right to believe them, but Budapest Memorandum is not working, and all package decisions of 1994 have been put under question." You know, uh, Putin didn't take it as a joke. A couple of days later, he said, we understand these words were addressed primarily to us. And I would like to say we heard them. You know, he's, yeah. uh, even the appearance of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine means a strategic threat to us from 110 kilometers. You can raise the range to 300 to 500 kilometers. Well, that's it. And Moscow will be in the impact zone. This is a strategic threat to us. We have it taken it that way. Uh, so obviously there you see uh, this is a big part of this kind of uh, calculus 
these equations that are going on that are determining um, just, you know, the extent of, of the uh, military operations uh, that are being carried out in the Ukraine um, and the duration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really good point, too, that, I mean, you have the U.K.'s own defense secretary. Either he's playing dumb and acting like he doesn't know, which is not a smart move if he genuinely thinks that he's talking to uh, to an actual Ukrainian prime minister, or he genuinely doesn't know. And to not know something like that, I it just... It blows my mind, this entire call. Now, Wallace has been trying to do some damage control, which is not surprising. And so we took to Twitter and said, things must be going so badly for the Kremlin that they are now resorting to pranks and video fakes, not the actions of a confident government. So, of course, this is not surprising that they are just trying to blame it on Russia. But the prank callers themselves have said that they don't have any ties to Russia's security forces. So, I mean, do we know where that claim comes from? Or is that just that uh, that is their thing of the moment that they are going to tie it to? Well, we've heard those allegations uh, before to a certain extent. Um I mean, I guess the, the the logic goes that it's got to be kind of difficult for somebody to get a hold of these phone numbers. So, therefore, uh, security intelligence must be involved. I don't know. I, you know, I don't yeah. understand the exact logic here. That seems to be kind of the gist of it. But we're talking about guys who, you know, aren't necessarily just prank calling super political targets, right? They prank called like Elton John. They prank called Lukashenko, you know, the president of Belarus. Like, uh, obviously, you know, it's a claim that that merits some effort to try to, you know, prove it. Uh, obviously, not not what the the British defense minister did. Their their tactic here really just seems to be kind of uh, deny and obscure, right? And they're not even doing a particularly good job of the denying part. They're kind of just, in a, in a way, effectively confirming the reality of mo- of most of what was said, or of what was said, right? Because if they if it was such a if it was just a total hoax, like why would they care at all, right? Yeah. But instead, they actually went to the step of filing a an official petition to YouTube. Um, that uh, this is, you know, an official document on British Ministry of Defense letterhead uh, that says, we are writing to insist you remove or at least block access to the videos. And uh, they come off very much sort of like a mafia-style negotiator here saying, I am confident you would not wish to be a conduit for Russian propaganda or be in any way associated with the potential consequences of this type of media manipulation. So, you know, this is this has been the attitude from the British. Um, it's uh, it's not real, and if it is real, then it's Russian propaganda. Um, and you know, also uh, there is. Uh, you know, YouTube needs to take it down. Um, mm-hmm. I can dispute the substance of any of the comments in anything, any particular way, right? So this is the kind of intelligence reporting. When you read it, you read in between the lines, and you say, "Oh, okay." So they're basically admitting that everything is totally true. Uh, they just don't like the fact that we're sharing it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love the move to just automatically say 
It's Russian propaganda. It has nothing to do with all of the ridiculous comments that were just made by our defense secretary that are now public and circulating all around the internet. I guess maybe, maybe it'll teach some of these politicians to pay attention to who is actually calling them before they engage in those conversations. Wyatt Reed, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure, H. Have you on. All right. Now, in our final half hour, we are going to be getting into exactly where the U.S. economy is headed and, of course, whether we could see cryptocurrency also taking a role as there are more and more currencies battling it out for global dominance and to take on the dollar's place as the world reserve currency. We'll get into all of that after the break here on The Backstory. Welcome back to The Backstory. We are getting into our final half hour here. That means you have 30 more minutes for the week to put in your calls. Be sure to place those calls now at 202-521-1320. Now, when it comes to just about everything we're seeing here in the United States, we have to always look at where our economy is headed and really what direction it's going in right now, because I know that when we talk about everything going on with foreign policy, it creates a lot of concerns here at home. And, you know, we've talked about a little bit this week how the Federal Reserve is handling things, how Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is now claiming that he is going to really take on interest rates and as if that is going to make some sort of a difference. And that's nothing new when you hear from these politicians where they see a problem, they act as if they are going to provide some sort of a solution or they are going to take on that problem. And then either they do something about it that doesn't have that much of an impact or they don't do anything at all and just kind of kick the can down the road until it's someone else's problem. So now when I look at the latest comments we've gotten from Chairman Jerome Powell, I will say I'm not that impressed by it because this is the guy who sat there all of last year and he said again and again that inflation was transitory, that these high prices that we were seeing were not going to last and that it was one of those things where it wasn't something that we needed to be worried about. Well, now we're in a position where we're looking at inflation at 40-year highs And it's something that everyone's worried about because they have to be, because they have no way in order to avoid it. So then you've got Powell saying, oh, yeah, well, we'll raise rates. We'll figure this out. Well, what he means by that is that they may raise rates by half a percentage point. They may, you know, include a few more rate hikes of a quarter of a percentage point, which basically just means that that's Powell's way of talking to the stock market.
market, as he has been for the last year or so, and kind of trying to smooth things over and to say, hey, I've got this, everything's good, you know, trying to convince investors that everything is good. But then my question becomes, how are you going to convince them that everything is fine when you have the administration sitting there saying, we're facing a global food crisis, we're facing a continued energy crunch and soaring energy prices because of the policies that they're putting into place. Well, then what that does is with those investors, that puts them in a position where they start getting a little weary about where the United States is headed. And the Federal Reserve may be able to kind of shrug that off with, you know, a few half a percentage interest rate hikes here and there, and that may help to smooth things over with investors. But then the problem then comes when you start hearing these claims of a recession, because anytime we hear the word recession, it makes us freak out. It's not a good word. It doesn't come with a good context whatsoever. However, we're in a standpoint where that's something that the United States is facing eventually. And part of the reason that it is facing that is because the Federal Reserve has printed trillions upon trillions of dollars for the last two years, and they have propped the economy up to this place where it can't possibly get to that place all on its own. It can only get to that place if it is the Federal Reserve and its policies that brought it there. So you see all of these record highs in the stock market. You see the ways in which the Federal Reserve has moved to prop everything up. And then you realize that any point when we eventually come down from that, which we eventually have to come down from that, right? The the Federal Reserve cannot continue to go on with the same policies again and again and again. And then, it, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you just can't keep going up record high after record high. At some point, you've got to come down from that. And The truth is that I don't know exactly when that's going to happen. There's a lot of great economists out there who may have certain predictions, and they may be absolutely right on the money with those predictions, but it is something to keep in mind when you're watching all of this unfold. Now, another topic that I want to get into today is how all of these sanctions are going to have an impact, right? Because that's something that we've seen, you know, we've talked about the impact that they're going to have likely here on the United States and on its allies in Europe. But when it comes to Russia, it's notable because they have taken the approach of now saying that when it comes to selling oil and gas, that they are are going to accept rubles, and that's something that they've specifically targeted at those quote-unquote unfriendly countries, but they're not stopping there. Russia is also now saying that they are considering selling oil and gas in Bitcoin as those sanctions take an approach. Now, if you followed kind of where the Russian government has been on cryptocurrencies, they actually were looking at an all-out ban just a couple of months ago. And this is something that was widely discussed and something that there was a lot of concern about. Well, now they've turned the corner. And why have they turned the corner? Because they see that cryptocurrencies are a way to get to get uh, around those sanctions because you're talking about a decentralized currency where the governments that are trying to target Russia right now can't target that cryptocurrency. And that is part of why cryptocurrency has so much power just 
in and of itself. Now, the latest reports on this have said that faced with stiffening sanctions from Western countries, Russia is now considering accepting Bitcoin as a payment. Now, they specifically have noted in this latest videotaped news conference that the chair of Russia's Duma Committee on Energy said that when it comes to quote-unquote friendly countries such as China or Turkey, that Russia is willing to be more flexible with their payment options, right? They're not, they're not going to uh, go and add in new restrictions for the countries that are working with them, given all of the countries that aren't. But the chair then went on to say that the national fiat currency of the buyer, as well as possibly Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, are being considered as alternative ways to pay for Russia's energy exports. He said, quote, we have been proposing to China for a long time to switch to settlements in national currencies for rubles and yuan, and with Turkey, it will be lira and rubles. And then he also added in, you can also trade Bitcoins. Of course, your first word is Bitcoins. Uh, however, we saw that Bitcoin was up 4% over the last 24 hours in response to the news. And it's notable to see really the government's response to cryptocurrencies because first and foremost, they want to figure out how to understand them. Second, they want to figure out how to control them. And third, they want to figure out how to make them work to their advantage. And so Russia is coming from a standpoint right now where they're saying, look, we'll consider just about any currency, whatever is going to work for these transactions. And for a number of these countries, they are going to be facing increasing scrutiny and pressure from the United States. We saw this week that the Biden administration was saying that it was going to set out its quote-unquote red line for China to try to force China into submission so that China didn't go and work with Russia when the United States said that it wasn't cool to work with Russia. And it, it works if the United States is able to maintain that power over a certain country, but it doesn't work in a case like China and Russia where they're already facing mounting power from the United States. So the question then becomes, what all do they have to lose from working with each other? And for the United States, any sanctions, tariffs, whatever it may be, anything that they put in place against those countries is going to come back and hurt themselves that much more. And that is an important and powerful lesson right there. Now, it is one of those cases where you look at just where cryptocurrencies are standing and you look at the fact that a lot of these governments, not only are they not in favor of cryptocurrencies because either they don't understand them or they can't quite figure out how to force people to tax or to pay taxes on them rather, but on top of that, they also look at cryptocurrencies and they see them as direct competition to their plans to roll out their own digital currencies because they see the writing on the wall. They see that everything is going digital. They see the convenience of the society that we live in where everything is on your phone. And of course, it would not be without any sort of additional thought that goes in that because it's always how they do this. They come in and they say, hey, we'll create, you know, whether it's a digital dollar, a digital ruble, whatever it may be, it's so convenient. You don't have to worry about all of the hassle that you have to go through to use the usual regular dollar. 
dollar. You can just use this nice digital dollar. Well, in doing that, you're actually giving the government unprecedented control over your life, your transactions, everything. I mean, think of all of the ways that you can get into trouble with the federal government. And instead of just going through the IRS and targeting you that way, they can quite literally target your direct bank account and go through it that way and stop your transactions there. That's something that we've seen a lot of the warnings we've seen coming out of China when they're moving forward as they are right now with the digital yuan and really the warning signs that come from that. Now, of course, that's not something that is going to be widely publicized by the government, but it is going to be something that is widely publicized by a lot of people who are concerned about everything from security to government overreach to the precedent that is set by this. Even though it seems like this really cool, new, easy invention, they are not looking at it from that standpoint, certainly. However, when it comes to the battle against cryptocurrencies, it's notable to see when governments say that they will consider cryptocurrencies and that that is something that they will look into because you have governments like the one in El Salvador where they say, hey, we want Bitcoin to be legal tender. We want it to be something that is widely relied upon. Now, of course, they're coming from the standpoint of dealing with the true mafia that is the IMF, dealing with the United States, wanting to look for alternatives, knowing that they are not going to find that with the United States dollars. So they're going to look to the world's most popular cryptocurrency. However, that's not going to be the case for everyone. Now, when it does come to a situation like the one that we are looking at where you know, now Russia is considering possibly using it. Other countries likely may consider that as well. However, at the same time, you see the absolute opposite of that over in Canada, where they not only were targeting the bank accounts of protesters there, but they were also targeting the cryptocurrency wallets. And that is a very important really line to look at there, which is the fact that, and as a lot of these, you know, popular cryptocurrency exchanges, some of their officials have pointed out the fact that, look, they have even been the ones to say, if you're going to hold crypto, you've got to have it in your own decentralized wallet. You have to have the keys to it. Stop relying on these major exchanges because governments like the government in Canada can come after them and target those wallets as a result. And so it really puts us in this situation where we are looking at the possibility of moving forward and exactly what that means. All right, we've got another caller on the line. Let's bring back in Tarif. Tarif, welcome back to the show. What's your latest comment? Okay, my latest comment is this. Thank you for taking my call again and free Julian Science again. We need, he needs to be free. Now, the comment earlier on the show, you, you was talking about the price of gas and things in that in, in in that nature like that. Well, I come to find out, I forgot to say in my last call in that um, breaking that the Yemen, the Yemenis had retaliated against a um, a plant in Saudi Arabia. Aramco, oh, excuse me, Aramco, mm-hmm. um, um, Judah, Saudi Arabia was a hit. So that's going to play big on the oil market. Was the price of gas might go up another, like. Per, per barrel, another dollar, like go from 115 to 116 or something like that, and maybe 120. And also, my second comment, three people, if you ever get a chance to have on your show, 
Tom Lagongo. He's an economics. He used to appear on the show like two years ago. Okay. He deals with the um, cryptocurrencies and gold, silver, and with the and with the rubles and things like that. Then you have another guy named Harley Sliner. He works with the um, Schiller Institute. And one more guy named Matt, Matthew Edward. He appears on the show with Fault Lines Radio with um, Jamal Thomas and friends. And so I'm just throwing those names out there. And thank you for taking my call again. You're doing a good job. Absolutely. I'm happy to take your call. And thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad you bring up that story because that had completely flown over my radar, but I will mention it while we're here. Okay, so the story that he mentioned is that Yemen's Houthis are now saying that they launched attacks on Saudi energy facilities on Friday. And as a result of that, the Saudi-led coalition said that oil giant Aramco's petroleum products distribution station was hit, causing a fire in two storage tanks. Now, they said that there were no casualties, but this is a reminder that this conflict keeps going on and on. And it's notable that when it comes from the side of the Saudi-led coalition, civilians have been targeted time and time again. I mean, how often have we heard stories coming out of Yemen? And yes, they don't get a lot of coverage. However, there are stories coming out of Yemen of weddings and schools and hospitals being targeted. And it's something that the coalition just kind of shrugs off. It's something that politicians act as if it doesn't matter because it happened in Yemen. However, in this case, whenever the Houthis target back at Saudi Arabia, They target their energy facilities. They're targeting what truly, really matters to Saudi Arabia and to a number of other countries around the world because they rely so heavily on Saudi Arabia. Now, the latest response from that, in addition to Houthis in Yemen taking responsibility for that attack, was that the Saudi energy ministry said that the kingdom strongly condemned the quote-unquote sabotage attacks, reiterating that it would not bear responsibility for any global oil supply disruptions resulting from such attacks. Yeah, they they it's it's interesting how the really the global energy market is the thing that they focus on at all times. They want to make sure that everyone knows that they are resilient in that and that that won't be impacted even all the while as uh, Saudi Arabia is telling the United States that they're not going to increase their production, that they're not going to target those skyrocketing energy prices because they're profiting from it all along. Now, they. what's interesting is they didn't necessarily just blame the Houthis in Yemen, but Saudi Arabia took the time to blame Iran for continuing to arm the Houthis, as they said, saying that it would lead to impacting the kingdom's production capacity and its ability to fulfill its obligations to global markets. Yeah, uh, they suddenly are concerned about people giving other people weapons. You would think that in the United States and the Biden administration's quest to make sure that they are best buds of Saudi Arabia, that they would pay attention to a statement like that. And granted, that's not to say that Saudi Arabia is going to have any moral compass whatsoever when it comes to looking at what the United States is doing in Ukraine right now. However, I really wish at the end of the day that the United States would find that moral compass as they continue to move forward with billions of dollars. Literally, they just signed off on a historic $13.5 
$13.6 billion in funding for Ukraine. Half of that is going to support Ukraine's military. I mean, just keep that in mind. Half of that historic aid package that they just signed off on, which, of course, Democrats and Republicans in Congress will sit there and they will argue back and forth all day long on issues that actually relate to the constituents that they claim that they are serving. However, when it comes to a situation like this, where all of a sudden, you know, all of these Democrats and Republicans who gathered together to hear Zelensky's address, now they've got to sign off on historic funding, and that's something that they don't argue about whatsoever. All right, before we go, we've got another caller. Let's bring in Anthony from Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for taking my call. I just, you know, some people might have thought the new Biden administration, they weren't ready up for the challenge, but it's I see even worse in my eyes. They're really making things worse, especially with the energy and the sanctions and um, just diplomacy wise, you know, they're not really seeking peace. They're seeking to escalate this conflict. And that's really apparent. And it's like they're trying to hurt us here at home. It's really crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it it makes no sense to me when I watch Biden make some of the statements that he's making. And, you know, his administration officials as well are doing the same thing. And they sit there and they say, yeah, there may be a global food shortage or, yeah, you're going to have to pay, you know, over $5 per gallon per gas. I guess that's conservative at this point. However, they continue to justify it. And it on a political sense, it doesn't seem to have or to carry any logic, especially when you're looking at midterm elections. But just on a human decency level of these being politicians who are enacted to, quote unquote, serve the American people, it it boggles my mind how they continue to get away with this approach, which is kind of shrugging off how the policies that they are actively implementing are affecting their people. And then on top of that, you've got Biden going over to Europe to put the pressure on European lawmakers to enact similar policies, even though they have repeatedly said that those policies would mean a travesty for their own people and would hurt their own economies. And yet Biden's trying to talk them into it as if there is some upside from it. And truly, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Oh, yeah. I mean, when have we had an American president overseas conducting diplomacy and no one's barely even paying attention to what he's saying because he's so ineffectual and incompetent? And, you know, I think it's funny how they're trying to boss around all the other countries and shame them into joining the program like China. And it's like, no, we're not we're not going with you. We don't agree with your agenda and we're not going along with your revisionist history. So thanks for the call. Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling Anthony in Detroit. And yeah, it is. It's notable to see really the fact that history is being made right now. And, you know, the United States has had so much power in the world as a whole. They've had the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. They've gotten to boss a lot of countries around. They've gotten to overthrow a lot of leaders. And now we're in a situation where, for whatever reason, the Biden administration has found itself in this place of thinking that they are going to continue this exact same approach that they have done for at least the last 20 years with the so-called war on terrorism. And in that approach, the countries that they have targeted have not 
been like Russia, right? The, the U.S. was able to go into Iraq to overthrow its leader, to install an occupation there. And that is not something that arguably easily they're going to do in Russia. If they were to try to do that with Russia, it would lead to World War III, which would mean a fight breaking out between two nuclear powers. It would not just be one of those situations where Russia just shrugged it off. And now, unlike in situations in the past where the U.S. has decided to target a country and the rest of sort of the international community has just kind of looked the other way because they didn't want to get involved in it. Now we're in a situation where you have countries around the world that are saying that they don't agree with what the United States is doing. And they may not be saying it outright and upfront. They may not be openly condemning the United States right now, but they are seeing the writing on the wall, which is that the U.S. is being incredibly reckless in the fight that it is trying to pick right now with Russia. And in the fact that you have the Biden administration increasing troops all around Ukraine and kind of dancing around saying like, it's fine. We're not doing anything. You shouldn't pay attention to what we're doing. It's all good. It's all in the name of freedom and democracy. Yet at the same time, they are setting an incredibly dangerous precedent. And they are saying that they will respond directly to Russia and giving this long list of reasons why they would do so. That's incredibly concerning because that is not a conflict that you get out of lightly. And yet at the exact same time, the Biden administration is discouraging any possibility of peace in Ukraine. They're discouraging President Zelensky and his administration from giving any concessions to Russia. And you may ask yourselves, why are they doing that? And then you look at the fact that the U.S. is now funneling in billions of dollars in new weapons into Ukraine. And you look at the fact that the the moves that the Biden administration is making tell us that they don't think that this conflict is going to come to an end anytime soon. And that should be enough to tell us a lot of things all around. And it should be making every single American citizen who is watching this and who more importantly is watching the media coverage of this, because the broad mainstream media coverage of this conflict has been to come from the standpoint of Russia bad, Ukraine good. Don't pay attention to what the United States is doing in this country. Do not pay attention to how they fueled this conflict up until this point. Do not pay attention to the fact that the U.S. is openly and has openly armed and worked with far-right neo-Nazi extremists in this country. And don't pay attention to any of that. Just pay attention to the basic left versus right. This side is good. This side is bad. And as long as they keep doing that, it shows you that they are refusing to provide accurate coverage and also refusing to tell the average American citizen what their government is actually doing and what their tax dollars at the end of the day are paying for. So not only does it set a troubling precedent, but it also puts us in a place where we are watching these decisions that are being made and we are given the power to continue to do the research, to look beyond just that basic mainstream narrative that is put out there, to think for ourselves and to find the possibility to do so by seeking out other sources, by seeking out other alternative platforms, even when the same old mainstream hit pieces continue to call them far-right Russian propaganda. Because the more that they beat up 
on those platforms, the more it is going to make people want to run to those platforms when they continue to stand up for truth and to stand up for what the people actually want to hear and they want to see. Because at the end of the day, that is one of the most important things that we can talk about. I'm grateful to have been able to be here all week to have had the chance to talk to all of these incredible guests, all of these great callers. Before we want to go, before we go, rather, I do want to say thank you to our intrepid producer, Rod, and our awesome sound engineer, Saul for making this show possible. Thank you to everyone who has played a role in the show this week. Thank you for still listening, still seeking out Sputnik Radio and the backstory, no matter how it is banned or deplatformed. For those of you who have said again and again that you are going to continue looking for this show and you are going to continue looking for those alternatives, you are making a difference. I hope you guys have a great weekend. We'll see you next week here on The Backstory.